So today we'll talk about rumors of deadly arms which have been circulating in Senegal in 2010. And according to this rumor, people had died mysteriously after a stranger driving a SUV uh, had given them arms. So, and before entering the, the subject, subject, I wish to point out that I have conducted fieldwork on this rumor uh, in a collaboration with Julien Bondaz, a colleague of mine, and we are now working together on the manuscript on, this, on the subject. So he's as much, in a way, is as much the author of this research as I am. So this case study on deadly arms is part of a larger comparative research I am conducting on occult rumors in West and Central Africa, my main fieldwork sites being Gabon first and more recently Senegal. For instance, before uh, working on, on, on deadly arms, I've been uh, uh, working, as uh, Ramon just said, on penis snatching, on rumors of penis snatching uh, in Western Central Africa, but also on uh, another rumor of killer mobile phone numbers, uh, uh, which spread from Nigeria to most of the continent, you know, African continent. And my claim is that all these rumors should not be regarded uh, as mere anecdotal stories, but rather as important phenomena which can cast new light on the social dynamics of contemporary Africa. And indeed, as we will see, rumors draw on tensions and ambiguities inherent in certain social situations, and they dramatize them. So in this perspective, rumors are stories good to tell for the people who circulate them, but also good to think for uh, us social anthropologists uh, as well. And in the case at hand, the, the rumor about deadly arms uh, uh, enables us to examine the central but also problematic role of charity in Senegalese society. And the, the word for charity in, in Wolof, the main language in Senegal, is sarah. So indeed, indeed, as we will see, the rumor reveals the contradiction between religious charity and public policies concerning begging and beggars. And in a more general manner, the rumor enables us to question the meaning and value of religious gifts. Whom do they benefit? And is there any danger in receiving them? So the rumor brings to the fore the ambiguities underlying the moral economy of gift-giving in the context of Senegalese, Senegalese Islam, and about 90% of the population of Senegal, Senegal is indeed, uh, are indeed Muslims. So the rumor reveals that gifts, including alms, um, are ambivalently torn between self-interest and selflessness, and that's a point uh, already that was uh, already stressed by Marcel Mauss in his famous uh, essay on the gift, in which he pointed out, and here I, I put him, the so-to-speak voluntary character of these total services, apparently free and disinterested, but nevertheless constrained and self-interested. But deadly arms also lead us to focus on the notion of sacrifice, since arms are often uh, conceived as a form of sacrifice in Senegal. And, and the, the, the Wolof word uh, salar is often translated by the word sacrifice, sacrifice in, in local French in Senegal. So the rumor reveals the mor moral ambivalence of sacrifices. And as we will see, the rumor dramatizes the threatening possibility that a charitable gift may serve to dissimulate a human sacrifice. So in sum, the rumor represents a paradigmatic example of poisonous gift, which enables us to cast a new light on gift and sacrifice, two key concepts in, in, in anthropology since uh, Marcel Mauss, at least. So let us now examine in more detail these rumors of deadly arms. The rumor appeared around the 20, uh, 25th of January 2010, 
uh, in Dakar or in Saint Louis. I'm not exactly sure between the two main one, these, these two Senegalese cities. And the next day, the offering of death, l'offrande de la mort, as it was usually called in French, makes the headlines in most Senegalese newspapers. For instance, L'Observateur, one of uh, Senegalese daily newspapers, reports the, follow the following rumor on its page four. An SUV driven by two men, one of whom was said to wear a turban, would generously distribute meat, 10,000 CFA francs, and per kale as alms to, to passers-by. Passers Unfortunately, all those, all those who accepted this charity had a sudden attack and passed away. This archetypal scenario includes all, all the salient ingredients of the rumor, which were almost always mentioned in subsequent retellings uh, of the story. So first, the SUV, the car. Uh, then the three main items of the gift, namely meat, a banknote, Uh, usually of uh, 10,000 fran uh, francs, and uh, uh, the piece of percale that is a cotton cloth that, use, that, that is usually uh, traditionally used for shrouds and thus an obvious reference to death. But also uh, uh, an, um, another important ingredient of the, of the scenario, it's the causal link, but never fully explained, always present but never fully explained, between the gift and the death. And finally, the oxymoronic label, offering of death, l'offrande de la mort, to name the rumor. So within, within a day or two, the rumor spread from Dakar and Saint Louis through, throughout the country. And less than a week later, uh, the rumor reached Gambia and the border of Mali. But its circulation remained limited to this region, to the Senegambian region, contrary to other transnational rumors such as penny snatching, for instance, which uh, circulate on a much wider scale. For instance, penny snatching has spread over most of the African continent. But these rumors were more specific to, to Senegal. Indeed, the rumor of deadly homes is subordinated to a social-cultural context concerning begging and almsgiving, which appears quite specific to Senegal. So the rumor was circulated by word of mouth, at home, at work, at the market, on public transport, but also in mosques. The, but the story was also given extensive media coverage, first on the radio, then on television and, and, and in newspapers, but also in, in digital media. So this genre of rumors thus comes uh, to represent witchcraft in the media age, uh, as I claim. Neither purely oral nor purely written, the rumor implies a constant back and forth between ordinary conversations and uh, the mass media. So it's a hybrid genre, genre of communication, which is often called radio, radio gossip, uh, radio cancan in, uh, in Senegal, or, or radio trottoir, pavement radio, radio. This genre of communication produces multiple, but often contradictory opinions about deadly arms. Indeed, uh, in their lively discussions uh, about the rumor, local people usually did not agree what to think about deadly arms. And these dissonant interpretations were collective attempt, attempts to make sense of this unsettling piece of news. And as a consequence, attitudes towards deadly arms were also diverse and ranged from conviction to disbelief. But the majority of people remain baffled over what to think about deadly arms. So during the time of its circulation, the rumor, tr the rumor triggered many incidents involving public accusations and often mob violence 
against people that were sus uh, individual that invi individuals that were suspected of distributing deadly arms. And for instance, here you have a map of the the incidents related to deadly arms. At least these incidents that were known uh, uh, to me, and you can see that it covers the most part of the of Senegal. So these incidents are particularly interesting because they enables us enable us to describe real events and thus go beyond the study of the rumor as a mere tale. They, enables, uh, they enable us to analyze more carefully the situations in which, in which the suspicions associated with the rumor could arise. So and during field work, uh, my colleague and me tried to focus uh, as much as possible on these incidents because they're particularly interesting. And we managed to identify several witnesses and uh, direct uh, protagonists, both accused and accusers involved uh, in these incidents. So, however, within two weeks, the rumor disappeared. The public intervention of the authorities to deny the rumor and quell the violence might have played a role in this extinction. But above all, as it is often the case uh, with these kinds of short-lived rumors, the public interest waned as another event uh, made news. And in this case, the, the situation is quite interesting because in this case, early February, so just 10 days after the, 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 the rumor appeared, the Magal, the Grand, Grand Magal was taking place and it is the most important ceremony of the Mourid Sufi Brotherhood during which hundreds of thousands of pilgrims meet in the holy city of Touba. And this event did not dispel deadly arms in the news only because of its national importance and this is why it is really interesting. Indeed, the Magal directly contributed to alleviate the anxieties of the origin of the rumor. Indeed, the Magal is a ceremony saturated by gifts. The pilgrims give offerings to the religious leaders of the Brotherhood, the Grand Marabou, as they usually call them, but also generous alms to the countless beggars who come to the holy city of Touba just for the occasion. And all these gifts are under the religious protection of the general caliph of the Brotherhood and are secured, so to speak, by his baraka. Baraka or barke in Wolof refers to the charisma attributed to, to uh, uh, Sufi leaders. So the Magal thus brings back to the fore the religious value of charitable gifts and restores the trust of beggars and arms givers, which had been shaken by the, at least momentarily shaken by the rumor. So narrative about deadly arms most often enumerate the items given, meat, banknote, uh, per kale, but they do not specify the arms giver's identity. Only two things can be hint hinted about him. First is rich, and then is a stranger. So his wealth is suggested by the fact that he drives an SUV and gives out 10,000 franc banknotes, the highest denomination in circulation and also a highly unusual sum for charity. So this generosity uh, uh, um, is too extraordinary not to appear uh, suspicious immediately. In some incidents, indeed, conspicuous wealth plays a, a, a direct, direct role in the accusation. For instance, on the 25th of January, Songan Gay a Senegalese man who lives in Europe is back in his home, hometown of Rufisque, where he plans to build some houses. And as soon as he arrives on the building site, driving an SUV, he starts distributing money around him. 
His gesture is motivated, probably, most probably, by the desire to ingratiate himself with the locals in order not to jeopardize his uh, real estate, estate project. Unfortunately, uh, uh, the recipient of his generosity misinterpret this generosity and they accuse him of being the, the deadly arms giver and immediately assault him. Uh, fortunately, the, the, poli the police comes in and rescue him before uh, it's too late. So wealth is a central theme which recurs in all local discussions about the rumor. It is obvious, or it was obvious to everyone uh, that the rich giver's motivation is to get even richer by distributing deadly arms, and it was also obvious that the targeted victims are those uh, who are likely to accept gifts from strangers out of necessity, be they, be they uh, beggars or, uh, more generally, uh, the have-nots. So the rumor and its local interpretations are shaped by a moral imagination that resorts to the occult to explain social inequalities. Uh, the rich are rich only because they selfishly sacrifice the poor by occult means. And this genre of sorcery of wealth, as Peter uh, Rechir calls it, rests upon a moral economy that sees profit as a zero-sum game for some people to win, others have to lose. And deadly arms take this logic to its parad paradoxical hate because the poor believe they will benefit from uh, the money given to them, but they lose their life instead. So the rumor thus bears witness to the distrust of the lower classes uh, toward the ruling elite, be they politicians or businessmen. And indeed, deadly arms... Arm, uh, deadly arms must be seen in the political context of Senegal in the, in the late uh, uh, 2000s. Indeed, the popular hope placed in Abdoulaye Wad uh, at the time of his election, his presidential election, in, or his election as a president uh, in 2000, had uh, uh, given way to a bitter dis disillusion because, uh, first, of the economic crisis, but also because of the persistent suspicions of corruption in the higher reaches of govern government. So the, the figure of the arms giver uh, would drive an expensive SUV and uh, distribute high denomination banknotes refers implicitly to the nouveau riche of uh, Abdoulaye Wad's era who live in ostentatious luxury while the have-nots uh, have struggle to make, uh, to make ends meet. Deadly arms thus evoke the threatening possibility that the elite's selfish strategies for accumulating wealth and power might go as far as perverting the charitable practices at the, at the heart of religious solidarity. So in this, con in this con context, many suspected that the rumor had been, in fact, deliberately planted by people from the lower, cl lower classes to get revenge on the nouveau riche. And indeed, as James Scott uh, taught us, gossip and rumors are often used as weapons of the weak. They are means through which the underprivileged can reassert the value of their own moral perspective uh, against the powerful. And uh, rumors about deadly arms indeed allow the uh, Senegalese to cast, to cast doubt uh, on the mor morality of the elite's charitable practices by exposing their self-serving nature. The, the arms giver is not only rich, he is also unrelated to his victim, victims. We don't know who does this, a Senegalese interlocutor told me. The car stops, they open the window, give the package, and leave. So the arms giver is anonymous because he conceals his face uh, with a, a turban 
and also because it remains hidden inside the car, about which it is sometimes added that it has tinted windows. The car is indeed used as a mask, and this explains why many narratives omit the vehicle's occupants as if the car itself was the main protagonist. Uh, for instance, it was often said, the car gives arms, and it was even called, uh, the rumors the, was even called the death SUV, le 4x4 de la mort. And uh, uh, the death car is indeed a, a motif that recurs in many other African rumors. For instance, a few weeks before the, appar the appearance of deadly arms in, in Senegal, another rumor was circulating, according to which someone driving uh, a, a luxury car was, was kidnapping children to sacrifice them. So the car motif stresses the close link, I think, between power on one side and anonymity and mobility. People who can afford to drive fast cars with tinted windows can do whatever they want and escape without being seen. And in some incidents related to deadly arms, uh, cars driven by strangers are enough, are enough to attract suspicions, even though no gifts uh, are involved. Anonymous gifts are never the, nevertheless the focal point of most incidents, as in the, the, the following example. So a man called Balde works in Kolda and wants to send a sack of rice to his mother who lives in a distant village. He entrusts the gift to a taxi driver who was planning a journey uh, to a village near his mother's. The driver arrives in the village where he, tends, where, he, where he intends to drop off the rice so that Balde's mother can pick it up later. But there he meets hostile villagers who refuse to take it and order him order order him to leave at once. And the same scene, the same scene sorry, occurs in another, another village. So the taxi driver has no option but to drive back to Kolda and return the gift to its giver. So this incident is due to the present, uh, as we see, the presence of intermediaries in the act of giving. What was originally uh, intended as a simple family gift between uh, a son and, and, and his mother, uh, is turned into a threatening anonymous gift. Not only does the giver commit the gift to an intermediary, but also the villagers themselves are not the final recipients and are not expecting to be used as intermediaries themselves. So from their perspective, the taxi driver is, is just a stranger who comes to their village and insists on giving them an unsolicited gift. And this is enough Uh, for the sack of rice to appear suspicious, even though uh, it doesn't match the common description of the, the deadly homes. Other incidents have been caused by an even more unsettling category of anonymous gifts, gifts without a giver. For instance, in a village, in a village near Sediu, a man found a 10,000-franc banknote by the wayside just after an SUV drove by, as it was uh, reported. Instead of picking it up, he, he, he raised the alarm. A crowd gathered around the, bank, the banknote, but nobody dared to touch it. As some people suggest burning it, a schoolteacher made his way through the crowd and grabbed the money. And his bold gesture elicited mixed reactions, while some praised him... Uh, um, Uh, for that, others condemned his foolhardiness. And after the episode, uh, what's interesting is that the local shopkeepers refused to take any money from him for fear of falling victim to deadly arms through his mediation. And a similar incident, quite similar incident occurred 
occurred in Durbel, in a market, a tailor, a tailor found a bag in front of the local mosque. A crowd of onlookers quickly gathered around the mysterious package. A man eventually dared to open the bag where he, where he found Pokel, and people started to speculate. Was it the deadly arms that everybody was talking about, or was it just a charitable gift that had been left anonymously in front of the mosque as recommended by the Koran? So as this incident shows, rumors of deadly arms bring into question the everyday gestures of charity. The beggars are the main victim of in, in, in this affair. They are the victims targeted by the, the evil uh, arms giver, but they also are the victims of the rumor itself. Indeed, the rumor puts begging into crisis and attracts, attracts suspicion on arms. Beggars most obviously cannot afford to stop begging, but they grow more suspicious. We live on arms, says a beggar, so we are compelled to accept what people give us. However, we won't accept just anything anymore. When somebody gives us arms, we screen the content. And conversely, arms givers refrain from, give from giving in fear of being accused. Indeed, another beggar observes, we have been receiving fewer arms lately. The few regu regular arms givers who dare to go, to go on being generous hesitate when they are about to give. Those who used to step out of their car to greet us now just reach out and slip away. And what's interesting is that uh, this behavior is not without risk be precisely because it can attract suspicion on the, on the driver who just slips away. So in the wake of the rumor, both arms givers and beggars are suddenly forced, forced to get out of their daily routine and more worriedly reflect upon the meaning and the consequences of giving and receiving. And according to a popular interpretation of the, of the rumor, by, by raising the fear of both giving and receiving arms, the rumor could be in fact a well-planned scheme of the authorities to dis discourage begging and get rid of the beggars. And indeed in Dakar and other major cities in Senegal, beggars are omnipresent to the point of being sometimes intrusive. And this interpretation of the rumor must be set back in the context of uh, public policy responses to begging uh, and the recur recur recurring controversies about the role of beggars in Senegalese society. Indeed, a repressive policy against beggars was implemented during the colonial era and um, uh, it became even more rigorous after independence. An anti-begging law uh, is passed in 1975 and police raids against beggars are regularly carried out. Uh, also, a derogatory vocabulary, vocabulary is used to legitimize this policy. Beggars are called human congestions, encombrements humains, or even human wastes, déchets humains, and public authorities aim for the sanitation, assainissement, or, and clearing des encombrements of Dakar and other major cities in, in Senegal. But in reality, this anti-begging law was never fully enforced because it's uh, not enforceable at all. Every police raid prompts reactions of public indignation, most notably uh, by religious leaders who stress the importance of charity and force the authorities to back out. And so the, the, the social perception of beggars and begging in Senegal is thus shaped by a tension, we could even say a contradiction, between religious charity on one side and public policies on the other side. 
In the law, this tension translated into a shaky compromise, begging is banned from all public space, but nonetheless permitted around mosques, notably at the time of the Friday prayer. But in fact, opponents of the uh, anti-begging law stand up for the almsgiver's interest rather than the beggar's. Charity, not begging, is supported and praised. And indeed, uh, Senegalese need beggars to give them alms. So rumors of deadly arms does bring to the fore a tension at the heart of charity in Senegal, a contradiction between unwelcome beggars and a charity without which no one can live. So to better understand this, let us now consider the other side of charity and take into account the almsgiver's point of view. The central importance of charity in Senegal is clearly linked to Islam. Salah, the word for charity in Wolof, derives uh, from the Arabic uh, word sadaka which is used throughout uh, the Quran to designate arms. In fact, Islam, uh, Islam distinguishes two kinds of arms, legal and supererogatory arms. Legal arms, or zakat, asaka in Wolof, uh, are compulsory, even though uh, uh, this religious obliga- obligation does not often translate into civil law in Muslim countries. By contrast, supererogatory arms Uh, or sadaka, salah in Wolof, are voluntary, even though they are strongly recommended by Muslim ethics. But in practice, uh, in practice, there are frequent, frequent overlaps and ambiguities between what should count as legal and uh, uh, or uh, voluntary arms. But the central role of arms in Islamic ethics helps to create a charitable habitus among Muslims. <laughs> It creates an interest for selflessness, to use an expression by Pierre Bourdieu, an intérêt au désintéressement. Selflessness is indeed, is indeed valued for the sake of a higher religious interest. Indeed, the concrete act of giving makes sense only if it is set back in a larger network of relationships beyond the immediate giver and recipient. Religious gifts always involve Indeed, uh, uh, religious gifts always involve God as a third, as a third party. God is not, is not so much the ultimate recipient uh, uh, as the addressee, or even, we could say, the dedicatee of all gifts. One does not give charity to God, but rather in his name. And indeed, Senegalese uh, beggars beg for alms by repeating the phrase, Salah Ngiriyala, the charity for God, or in the name of God. Arms are thus indirect oblations to God. But God also represents the giver uh, of the reward in return of the initial gift. Of course, God uh, cannot be obliged by the gifts made in his name. And uh, also the reward cannot be conceived as a counter gift since God is not really the recipient of the gift. God does not reciprocate gifts. He freely rewards the selflessness at the origin of the charitable gifts of men between them. Nevertheless, the, uh, he, uh, the divine reward is expected, or at least hoped for, by the giver. And this tension between self-interest and selflessness produces, produces a specific or even a paradoxical uh, kind of interest, a self-interested selflessness, as I propose to call it. Charitable gifts uh, fulfill multiple functions for the giver's benefit. Uh, first, pur- purification. Arms purify the giver and his wealth. And this is uh, indeed the main function of legal arms uh, in Islam. 
but also propitiation. Alms attracts, attract God's mercy on the giver. Expiation as well. Alms redeem the giver's sin. And uh, the divine reward is seen as proportional to the initial gift. Indeed, a Quranic uh, verse states, the men and the women who practice charity and they who have loaned God a goodly loan, it will be multiplied for them and they will have a noble reward. And Muslim theologians have even quantified the divine reward in return for, of, of alms in accordance with their recipients and uh, circumstances. For instance, the reward for a gift to a disabled person is 90 times higher. The uh, um, reward is doubled on Fridays, and it is supposed to be 70 times higher if alms are given anonymously. So in, re in reward of their alms, givers hope to go to heaven. But in fact, the divine reward wavers between salvation in the other world and blessing in this world. The expectation of return is indeed shaped by a tension between spiritual and mundane interests. For instance, as the Wall of Pro Proverbs says, arms increase the lifespan, lifespan and reduce uh, the sins. Arms also fulfill an apotropaic function in everyday life. They ward off misfortune. And it is indeed often advised to give arms each morning to be protected against evil, especially after nightmares. This is the reason why one of my informants told me that beggars beg to live, but also to keep almsgiver alive, pour les faire vivre, they told me, he told me. Beggars are indeed, uh, are therefore vital protagonists in Senegalese society. The givers need them as much as the contrary. Beggars play an active part in the transmission of the divine reward. They are expected to pray for the giver in acknowledgement of his charity. Almsgiving must therefore be understood in the context of a prayer economy, uh, to use a concept by uh, Benjamin Suarez. Material goods are given in exchange of prayers which grant access to salvation, salvation goods, as Max Weber calls them. However, even though uh, recipients benefit from charity, they are only intermediaries in a larger relation between almsgivers and God. Beggars are thus instruments for the salvation of the rich. Of course, all this is not uh, totally specific to Senegalese Islam, but uh, it's a more general feature of monotheistic charity, as some authors uh, labeled it. Islamic charity and Christian uh, uh, caritas charity both derive historically from the Jewish doc doctrine of charity. And it might, be even, uh, uh, it might even be a general feature of all salvation religions. Indeed, uh, the major world religions highly, values, highly value ideologies of the pure gift of gratuitous and unreciprocated uh, gifts, as Jonathan Parry showed in his article on the gift, Indian, the Indian gift and the Indian gift. Based, uh, and this article was based on a reappraisal of Moses. Indeed, in his essay on the gift, I was quoted in my introduction, Marcel Moss uh, pays particular attention to the reciprocity that shapes the practices of gift-giving. He puts the stress on the three obligations to give, to receive, and to reciprocate. But this theoretical framework, framework explains why he pays only little attention to arms, uh, uh, because they imply no obligation to reciprocate. There's only a, a, a very brief note on arms at the end of the first chapter. So in, in these two brief paragraphs, 
most notices the, the Jewish, the Hebraic or, origin of monotheistic charity. He also points out uh, the affinity between arms and sacrifice, that, thus bridging the gap between his essay on the gift and his previous essay on the sacrifice written, written with Henri Hubert in uh, 1899. And this link between arms and sacrifice is an important topic on which we will come back later. But this, not, uh, this note on arms comes to a sudden end when most abruptly concludes. However, let us return to our main subject, the gift and the obligation to, recipro to reciprocate. Indeed, uh, um, arms differ too much from the theoretical model based on reciprocity at the heart of most uh, of Moses' arguments. In this respect, we can oppose uh, reciprocal forms of gift, of gifts, namely motion, what we usually call uh, motion gifts that entail the, expecta the expectation of a counter gift from the recipient, and non-reciprocal forms of gifts, that is gratuitous uh, gifts that entail no expectation of return from the recipient. And in the, in the latter forms, in non-reciprocal forms, the expectation of a reward may not be totally absent, absent but this reward comes from a third party, uh, distinct from the recipient, a possibility that most does not really take into account in his essay. So we can still speak of a gift circuit, because gifts circulate. But in this case, circulation is not based on direct uh, reciprocity, or even on generalized reciprocity, where A gives to B, who gives to C, who eventually gives back, no, eventually gives to A. So nobody gives back directly, but gifts still circulate. So we can still uh, speak of a gift circuit, uh, but circulation is not based on direct reciprocity or even on generalized reciprocity. The circuit of religious gifts, such as alms but also uh, offerings, is a radically asymmetric one because it entails a vertical relation to God, with God, which is of a totally different nature than nature than the ordinary relations between men. So the horizontal relation between giver and recipient, the, what I call the concrete act of giving, is a first order relation which is embedded into another relation at a superior level, level a vertical relation on which the expectation of return is based. Thus, in this case, the tension between selflessness and self-interest at the heart of almsgiving does not stem from the possible existence of a counter-gift from the recipient, but from a more indirect and complex cause. It lies on the fact that the first-order relation between the giver and the recipient may be nothing but an instrument for the second-order relation between the giver and the, invisible third, uh, and the invisible third party. Since the giver's motives, as well as the identity of the third party, remain opaque to the recipient, Almsgiving always involves the threatening possibility that the selfless, selfless gift in fact conceals selfish motives and may even turn out to be detrimental to the recipient. This is all the more so as arms are often prescribed by Marabou for the benefit of the giver. And here by Marabou... <coughs> I, I refer not to Sufi leaders, but to local healers and diviners who most often combine Quranic and so-called pagan magic. So at the end of the divination session, 
Marabou frequently ask their clients to let out a charity or sacrifice, as they usually say, gagner um, salar in Wolof, or sortir un sacrifice in local, in local uh, French. The objective might be to protect the clients against misfortune, to cure an illness, to find a job, to get a promotion, or to succeed in any uh, undertaking. The prescription by the marabou often specifies the items that are to be given. Could be uh, sugar, candles, uh, cola, cola nuts, money, meat, <coughs> whatever. Uh, the, the prescription also specifies uh, the recipient. Could be a beggar, a child, the mother of twins, a blind man, an albino, or even the first person uh, you encounter uh, on the street uh, on the, in the morning. And it also sometimes uh, specifies the circumstances uh, of the of almsgiving, time, place, but also the prayers and gesture, gestures that must go with the gift. So this kind of alms intensifies the tension between selflessness and self-interest. Indeed, they directly uh, reflect the giver's misfortune or desires, and by their content and value, uh, they reveal the seriousness of the problem. Moreover, the almsgiver's success is sometimes thought to be obtained at the expense of the recipient. Since beggars cannot afford to decline alms, they can be easily taken advantage of and manipulated by givers. And indeed, beggars often complain that they are used as repositories for bad luck, the dépôt de malheur. They are afraid of receiving gifts weighed weighed down by misfortune and are therefore suspicious of the gestures and words that may go with the gift. If someone spins the arms around his head before giving it, I never accept it, says a beggar. Another refuses arms that go with incantations. I don't know, I don't know which prayers have been recited upon it. That's why I refrain from taking it. So beggars fear that the gift may be used to convey or to hide something else. Arms prescribed by Meribu are always viewed, viewed with suspicion because they are, because they are self-serving charities for purely mundane interests. Not only the beggar is an instrument for the fulfill, fulfillment of the giver's wishes, but he could even turn out to be a victim of these desires, either by being inadvert, inadvertently contaminated by the giver's misfortune, or even worse, uh, by being the target of sorcery. Indeed, arms prescribed by Marabou are viewed all the more ambivalently since Marabou themselves are ambivalent characters. Only a thin line demarcates uh, magic from sorcery and Marabou are often suspected of being sorcerers themselves. themselves. Indeed, uh, Maraboutic magic, called ligay in Wolof, the, the word uh, means uh, work, but by extension it means uh, magic, be it uh, good or bad magic, so ligay, can be either good or harmful. And in popular discourses, these suspicions are often related to the distinction, to the distinction, distinction sorry, between Muslim and uh, so-called pagan practices. Good marabou pray God, whereas bad marabou are suspected to invoke spirits as well. Uh, jine in Wolof, the genes of the of Muslim. Uh, So this opposition is in reality less clear-cut. Some spirits are indeed faithful to God and act as intercessors between him and man. 
And these good spirits must be dis distinguished from so-called pagan spirit, uh, Tiedo in Wolof, which is usually transla translated by pagan. So these good spirits must be distinguished from pagan spirits and above all from evil spirits and demons, Saitane uh, in Wolof from the Arabic uh, word Shaitan, Satan. There is therefore a wide range of intermedi intermediate figures between good and evil marabou, according to the alleged purpose of their magical work and the putative identity of the supernatural powers that they appeal to. So in this perspective, uh, the most evil marabou takes the figure of a sorcerer who summons demons in order to harm people. We thus see the chain of suspicion that can affect arms from the recipient's uh, point of view. The more self-interested the arms are suspected to be, and the most self-interested ones are those which, which seek wealth uh, or power at the expense uh, of other people. So the more self-interested the arms are suspected to be, the likelier is, is, it is that the satisfaction of the giver's interest turns out to be detrimental to the recipient and that the arms imply a pact uh, with evil powers uh, rather than with God. So in sum, the more self-interested charity is, the more there is a risk that it, that it turns into sorcery. And it is precisely what is at stake in rumors about deadly arms. Deadly arms were indeed unanimously regarded as a kind of ligay of maraboutic magic by uh, all uh, my interlocutors. But deadly arms are in fact sacrifices disguised as charitable gifts. And many of my Senegalese interlocutors indeed said about, uh, about the rumor, this is a sacrifice. One of them even remembered the rumor as the story of the sacrifice. And these spontaneous comparisons between charity and sacrifice are not totally surprising since arms are often conceived as a form of sacrifice in Senegal. And indeed the word salah is commonly translated by sacrifice, sacrifice in local French. Indeed, charity often includes the sacrifice of an animal and the gift of its meat to uh, the poor and the needy. And in the rumor scenario, meat, one important item of the deadly package, clearly alludes to uh, uh, animal sacrifice. But more generally, any kinds of arms, even if uh, no meat is involved, is locally conceived as a sacrificial offering since God is their ultimate addressee, as we have already seen. Giving charity also means sacrificing to God. And in this context, deadly arms, the rumors about deadly arms, expose the occult flip side of this uh, gift cum sacrifice. The rumor reveals the moral ambiguity of sacrificial practices. Indeed, in Senegal, the ideal model of sacrifice is the Abraham Abrahamic sacrifice. Indeed, the Quran tells that God asked Ibrahim to sacrifice his firstborn son as an act of submission. Ibrahim accepts, but at the very last moment, a lamb miraculously takes the place of the son. And during the feast of uh, the sacrifice, one of the most important holidays in Islam, and it's called Tabaski in, in Senegal, Muslims sacrifice a sheep to commemorate Ibrahim's submission to God. And the sacrifier and his family eat part of the sacrificial meat, but they also have to keep one-third, usually it's one-third, for charitable gifts to the poor and needy. We thus see that arms 
thus make the sacrifice perfect. There's a strong connection between uh, uh, arms and sac animal sacrifice. The sacrifice of Tabaski, with its close association with arms, represents the, sac the sacrifice par excellence, the canonical model in the light of which other sacrificial practices are considered and judged. Indeed, one can find in Senegal, in Senegal other types of sacrifice which diverge from, the, from this uh, Abrahamic, or we should rather call uh, Ibrahimian model uh, uh, of sacrifice. So other types of sacrifice which exist on its margin or, or, or diverge from, from, from this model. For instance, uh, sacrifices to spirits, jine, who can act as intercessors between men and God. These sacrificial practices belong to personal magic and are usually performed by a marabou on behalf of his clients. Other, other sacrificial practices are part of public cults rather than personal magic. For instance, in Wolof and Lebu uh, religious traditions, sacrifices are re re regularly performed to feed the spirits and uh, strengthen the relationship with them. This spirit, called Tour or, or Rab, I don't elaborate on the difference between them, are sometimes uh, identified with Muslim spirits, jinnah. Sometimes even the local imam comes to the ceremony to immolate the animal according to, the, uh, to Islamic rules. There exist thus frequent overlaps and many uh, compromises between Muslim sacrifices and sacrifices to so-called pagan spirits. But all, uh, in any case, uh, all these sacrifices to spirit, be they jinnah, rab or tour, are seen as, a me as means to obtain something in return from them. Could be protection, fertility, healing, wealth, power, and indeed spirits do, are supposed, uh, do not spirits do not give anything for free. For free, it is said. Sacrificial practices are, are thus torn between overlapping repertoires. On the one hand, the Islamic model of a selfless sacrifice accomplished in submission to God and closely associated with alms giving. And on the other hand, different kinds of sacrifices to spirits, which are all conceived as a form of exchange, or at least of reciprocal gift-giving, because the sacrifier expects to get something in return. And this latter kind of sacrifice is what most calls a contract sacrifice in his uh, 1899 essay on sacrifice. And this tension between submission sacrifice, what I call submission sacrifice and contract sacrifice, is above all a matter of self-interest, a point that uh, most rightly stressed in his essay on sacrifice. And you have the, you can read it on the, that's the second excerpt uh, on my, in my handout. So, as with alms, the more self-interested a sacrifice is suspected to be, the more it diverges from the ideal model of the submission sacrifice to God and the closer it gets to a contract sacrifice with evil spirits. And the most self-interested sacrifices are supposed to be human sacrifices, uh, sacrifices humains, as they call it in, in Senegal, a recurring theme in popular discourses about witchcraft and the occult. And in this case, the sacrificial victim is not an, an, an animal anymore, a symbolic, a symbolic substitute for a human person according to the Abrahamic myth, but it is directly a, per, a, per, a person. 
Rumors about deadly arms were frequently interpreted along, along such lines. It was indeed said that the arms giver had concluded a pact with evil powers, with evil, evil, evil spirits, in order to obtain wealth or power in exchange for the sacrifice of a human victim. So let us now sum up our argument. We have seen that charity can only make sense for the participants themselves if it is set back in a larger network of relationships. Indeed, the concrete interaction between the giver and the recipient is but the visible part of the gift. But the gift also entails another part, invisible or imagined, which includes all the relationships involved in the gift circuit beyond the immediate transfer. And indeed, as we have seen in Senegal, charity also constitutes a sacrificial offering to an invisible third party. But there are many ways for the participants to imagine this invisible part or the invisible part, the invisible part of this gift cum sacrifice. Many ways for the participants to imagine the invisible part of this gift cum sacrifice. The possibilities range from pious charity to sorcery, according to the alleged degree of the self-interestedness of the gift. And in the case of deadly arms, we must also distinguish the overt and the covert forms of the invisible part of the gift. The overt form, what I call the overt form, represents what deadly arms ought to be, or what they are supposed to be to all appearances. Namely, a pious charity following the sacrifice of an animal to God, as indicated by the, presen the presence of meat in the rumors scenario. But the covered form represents what these arms hide in reality. Far from bringing the last sequence of an animal sacrifice, deadly arms turn out to be the first sequence of a human sacrifice. So ultimately, the sacrificial victim is not the animal whose meat is given, but the recipient who is killed by the gift. The meat is there, and that's the, the recipient is in fact the victim of deadly arms. We can summarize this in the following, following way, by playing on the dual translation of the word salah in local French, either a charity or a sacrifice. Someone sacrifices someone else by giving him something in sacrifice. So it's the first sacrifice used as an instrument for a second sacrifice, a human sacrifice. So the apparently selfless gift turns out to be an instrument for a selfish transaction at another level. On the occasion of almsgiving, without even realizing it, the recipient gets involved at his own expense in an opaque relationship of a totally different nature with evil powers. Instead of being the benef beneficiary of a gift, the recipient serves as an exchange value to pay a debt. Indeed, human sacrifices are often conceived as debt payments. Sorcerers get into bigger and bigger debts in order to satisf satisfy their greed for wealth and power. And in our case, indeed, the arms giver is obviously already rich since he drives an expensive car and distrib distributes high denomination banknotes. So in, in this way, in this perspective, Deadly arms are therefore gifts that hide a debt. The repayment of an occult debt is disguised as a charitable gift. In conclusion, rumors of deadly arms therefore evoke the threatening possibility of a total reversal of the everyday logic of charity, 
and hyper, hyperbolic perversion of its underlying, underlying moral economy. A charitable gift turns out to be a form of sorcery. That is exactly to say that is, that, that is to say exactly the opposite of what it, would, it ought to be. What makes and what makes deadly arms so utterly out, uh, outrageous and therefore contrib contributes to the local success of the rumor is not so much uh, the fact that individuals without scruples are ready to sacrifice their, na their neighbor uh, to satisfy their greed for wealth and power, because everybody already knows that. It is rather that this greed could go as far as perverting, by faking them, the charitable practices at the art of religious solidarity. Hence, the oxymoronic expressions used about the rumor, offering of death, l'offrande de la mort, but also murderous benefactor, the bienfaiteur assassin, or even charity killer, the tueur charitable. Deadly arms thus represent a variation on the theme of poison gift, a recurring topic in African witchcraft. And several authors have stressed that new forms of the occult in contemporary Africa bear witness to a general crisis of the gift. For instance, Philippe de Bouc uh, has shown that uh, accusations again, against child witches in Central Africa are uh, nothing but the symptom of a crisis that affects the ordinary practices of gifts between parents and children, and more generally, uh, kin-based reciprocity. And what I find interesting is that rumors about deadly arms prove that this crisis affects not only kinship solidarity, but also, on a larger scale, religious solidarity and the anonymous practice of charity. But in fact, the rumor only takes to their extreme pre-existing pre-existing pre anxieties over the morality of arms in the context of a Muslim society such as Senegal. It dramatizes the moral perils of charity, to use an expression by Jonathan Parry in his book with Maurice Bloch, Money and the Morality of Exchange. Since religious gifts, be they arms, offerings, or sacrifices, are never reducible to uh, uh, immediate, immediate transfers between giver and recipient, but also entail imaginary relationships with invisible agents, they always hold a certain amount of referential ambiguity and moral ambivalence, which can give rise to all kinds of anxious speculations. So in a society where arms are a gift and a sacrifice at the same time, the rumor worriedly brings into question the relations between them, between gift and sacrifice, and reveals a gray area between religion, magic, and sorcery. To whom do the givers sacrifice when they give alms? And what do they expect in return? And in the end, are the recipients not exposed to be easy praise, manipulated by selfish givers, and at the mercy of invisible powers? So in conclusion, far from being an anecdotal story, uh, I hope I have convinced you that this rumor of deadly arms proves to be a perfect case study to bring into light the moral ambivalence of gifts and the ambiguous relations of men between them, between them, but also with God and the spirits. Thank you very much. <laughs>